Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Josh Siegel. It's uh, July 25th, 2022. We're at Proof Rock in Portland. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, the first question, as you know, to get started is why wine? Why wine? You know, I've been asking, asking myself that uh, a long, long time. Um, I could say one, one reason is my brother who turned me on to some good wines um, uh, early on. But... Um, other than that, you know, I was, uh, I was a touring musician before I was uh, in the wine business and uh, kind of a little funny story, um, in the 90s I was touring with uh, the Indigo Girls and uh, on the rider there were a couple bottles of wine, and the rider means like with the food that they just have backstage. And uh, one was an Oki California Chardonnay that I didn't really care for, but the other was always a Shiraz. And so I found myself, you know, the beginning of the tour, opening, opening that each night. And about a week into the tour, uh, a, a very, uh, very famous rock drummer that I had the honor of playing with kind of took me aside and said, you know, you're kind of drinking my wine. I, <laughs> I have that on the rider because I don't really drink much, but my wife loves Shiraz and I kind of just accumulated at the end of the tour. I bring home a couple cases of wine and I really don't care. You're welcome to drink it. But the reason I bring it up is that, you know, you're welcome to add another bottle to the rider. You should talk to the manager and then you could just have something else or whatever. And I was like, whoa, great. You know, so I talked to the manager and got some other things on, on there. And that kind of allowed me to, uh, have a bunch of, you know, wine coming, coming in that I could try every night. And it kind of started this, uh, you know, different level of exploration in a way while on tour and then successively when touring with other, other artists did the same thing. And so it's a number of years of, uh, exploring wine that way as, you know, and, and beyond, but, um, kind of got me in, into things. And as years progressed, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, I just found myself reading a lot more about wine than, than practicing, I guess. And I was working in film music. Um, and I was living in Southern California, working in Hollywood, and uh, nearly got a sales job for the small importer down there. And uh, that it kind of fell through. But long story short, you know, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, and I moved up here in 2004. And I was ready to try something new. And so I uh, got a sales rep job in wine uh, for a small importer distributorship at the time um, and started selling wine. And uh, this started that learning curve. I mean, at, at that time, I was uh, so green. You know, I mean, all I knew was, uh, you know, Cote d'Iron and Chateau Neuf and a few other things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd just go into wine shops and, you know, just like introduce myself and talk about music as much as wine because that's what I knew and just kind of you know ingratiate yourself with people and fortunately uh, for the most part you know people in this business and especially here in Oregon are welcoming and uh, you know that just started the learning curve and uh, that's why you know as I always put it it's uh, the wine the wine claws got their hooks in me and I, I, I you know can never get them out <laughs> so they, they sucked me in and and it's uh, started a new path and, and it's, it's been a fun path 
definitely a theme we've come across a time or two, as you yeah. know, in our interviews. So let's back up a bit and talk about life before wine. Obviously, some interesting things you touched on there. So tell us about uh, upbringing before all that. Where were you born and raised, and what it was your kind of your path after, say, high school? Uh, I was born actually uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I was raised in Los Angeles. I moved there when I was uh, really little, so I'm from LA. Um, and my my mom is a concert pianist and uh, and was a piano teacher most of her career. And so uh, me and my siblings were uh, forced to uh, <laughs> play music essentially. So I grew up playing classical violin, and uh, only. Uh, in college, did I start? Uh, or actually, in high school, I started playing saxophone, and you know, and got more into jazz, and became you know more of a primarily a saxophonist. Came back to strings, and so working professionally, um, I worked more um, as a multi instrumentalist with uh, both strings and woodwinds. Um, what was the other part of the question? Just sort of career path. <laughs> what did you What did you do after school? Yeah, after school, you know, I mean, I early school. Um, I studied all kinds of stuff because I wasn't about to be a classical violin major and uh, instead uh, started other stuff and just played music along the way and um, spent a year in Paris which was uh, part of uh, you know the whole journey. I, I lived in France for a year when I was eight and so um, went back and you know spent a college year there and have been going back ever since and that's certainly a part of part of my wine journey and, and uh, you know that we import um, you know one of the primary countries we import from is France so mm -hmm. that's a great part of the story um, but uh, yeah after finishing my first undergrad degree I started a second one in music because uh, you know that it was at that point that I was like okay I really want to do this so I started a, a music degree without really the intention of finishing it so I just studied for a few years and then I got out there and started uh, working in music Tell me, tell me about that path. Uh, how do you how do you break in, and and what was the kind of the career path in music for you? Yeah, you know, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's networking. It's uh, you know, it's uh, ingratiating yourself. You know, my I uh, I fancied myself after studying music, being a, a jazz, a dedicated jazz saxophonist, and actually moved to Europe and was in Denmark and France, uh, trying to play there and. and uh, wasn't really coming together, and so I came back. Uh, it was kind of just back, you know, in my mid 20s, and I was kind of figuring out, am I, what am I going to do? Am I going to do something different completely? I'm going to keep focusing on music, and um, just felt like I never really had given it a a go in Los Angeles um, as a professional, even though I played with bands and done a number of gigs. So then I just started networking and just sitting in with everyone I could and just you know trying to get work. And that started my whole rock rock path, and you know, working as a, kind of a folk rock uh, multi instrumentalist. You know, so uh, it was just uh, you know getting lucky, meeting the right people, and, and most importantly, working hard. Mm -hmm. you know, like most things. Tell us some of the moments there, or the either the tours or albums worked on, or something that you're kind of proudest of. You look back on most fondly. Oh um, well. I was in a band that had a record deal called The Borrowers, and um, that um, those are some really proud moments. You know, getting radio airplay and touring around the country and reaching the the, the near breakthrough, but you know, a certain level of breakthrough success and getting some attention and kind of you know, this is the kind of we're contemporaries of Counting Crows and the Wallflowers. This is like acoustic rock in the '90s, and so those those are some proud moments. Um, 
but more fun to talk about are touring with some other other artists and getting to play some some great venues. Um, I was on the first Lilith Fair and uh, toured all over the country with that, and that was a really great experience playing with a ton of musicians and with some large venues. Um, but probably the the top of the list um, was somehow ending up doing a guitar solo at Madison Square Garden, which I have no had no right to do because I barely play guitar, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, I was asked to do it, and I, you know, figured it out and, and did it, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, maybe uh, playing Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado, just this, this incredible venue. And probably playing the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, just because that's right in my home neighborhood I grew up in. So, you know, playing a show there and walking home afterwards was uh, pretty stellar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So at that point, you were achieving some success in that in that world. What prompted the move to Oregon and the, and the career change? Well, um, you know, uh, early 2000s, uh, things were kind of slowing up a bit. I'd been touring with Joan Baez for three years, and uh, she took some time off after the passing away of her sister. And uh, so I've just put out all my feelers to all the incredible musicians I had met in the last like five, ten years and looking for more work. And I just, there wasn't a lot of touring work. And even some of the more established players I had met, they're like, yeah, things are really tough right now. You know, so it's just the way it is. And I kind of just felt like, you know, it's, as, uh, as high as the highs can be, you know, you, you can always, as a side musician, you can always end up just searching for that gig. You're not really, you know, you just can in control of your own destiny. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like, you know, I want to try something new. And I, I started working in film music, doing music copying, which is doing sheet music work for composers, for feature films. Did that for uh, a few years. Uh, but I just felt like I wanted to try something new. You know, I felt kind of, you know, uh, trapped behind the, the keyboard, uh, that all the performance I had done, and suddenly I was just working in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, later on I would reflect that whatever you do, you end up working in front of a computer for the most part, so it doesn't, uh, it's hard to, hard to avoid, especially this, you know, these days. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, my, my wife, or as I said, then girlfriend, we were, we were in my small apartment in Santa Monica looking to make a change, and I had come up here to go skiing with a buddy that lived here, and you know, I came back and I was like, honey, what about Oregon? Have you spent much time in Portland? And she was like, yeah, you know, I, I've been there before. I actually thought about moving there a long time ago. I, I like it. And I was like, let's go have a look-see. And we, uh, you know, sure enough, a month later, came up here, and there it was. Came back to L.A. And it's like, hey, everybody, we're moving to Oregon in a month, you know. <laughs> and so uh, we just decided to up and do it. Neither of us knew what we were going to do. But we felt like, you know, uh, that's uh, the adventure we were, we were looking for. You know, we both had lived itinerant lives on our own and traveled a lot, and we were ready for more adventure. And we just felt like uh, this is a good place to try something new. So... Um, you know, we came up here and, and uh, figured out our, our path, and that's what led me to, to working in wine in Oregon. So you mentioned that wine became something that just kind of got its claws in you and, and never really let go. So as that was beginning to happen, tell me about the first steps for you into the world of wine. You mentioned you started, you got work as a, in, in sales. Uh, was that what you hoped to do? Was that just kind of what was there to be done? What, what were you kind of thinking at that point as you got in, as you kind of dipped your toe in? It was what I hoped to do. You know, I had... Uh, 
two key people that I knew when I was in Los Angeles, one my cousin, another uh, someone who's an established colleague in the business. And those are the only people I knew who worked in the wine business. And I had spoken to both of them. And they both worked on the wholesale, wholesale side of things. So they kind of had talked to me a bit about this, you know, the side of the business that I've remained in. And uh, so uh, it seemed intriguing and, and a good path for me. And so, and actually one of them referred me to the, the, the two guys that, you know, that ended up hiring me. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so it was a direct referral and I was just, of course, a complete unknown quantity, but with a, an interesting background and, you know, uh, uh, that I spoke French, you know, they took a chance on me, you know, mm -hmm. so I got lucky really. And, uh, you know, got a job selling wine and uh, just figured it out from there. So tell us about the first job. You mentioned you're still learning a lot about wine at that point. So tell us about how long it took you to feel comfortable in the role and, and some of the kind of learning experiences that you had. Uh, yeah, you know, um, like I said, you know, the people in Oregon are, uh, for the most part, pretty welcoming. There's definitely a few, uh, a few accounts that were screaming at the headquarters going like, why'd you send me this guy? You know, he doesn't know anything. But for the most part, you know, people are pretty uh, accepting. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're warm and direct and honest and, uh, you know, forthcoming with people, it goes a long way. And so, you know, I, I never really was uncomfortable. You know, it's just more, it took probably two years. You know, I remember my boss at the time saying it takes about two years to get in good with customers. And that is certainly true. You know, we develop trust. Um, but also, you know, it took me those first two years um, to to feel like I had things in my wheelhouse. Those first two years, I driving down to Eugene and selling down there once a week was my you know, kind of thing, my uh, assignment mm -hmm. for the company, like develop Eugene and then also work in the Portland market. So, you know, I did that for over two years um, and that, you know, developed a lot of great relationships doing that. I had a good time and did a lot, did a lot of driving. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd say about two years. So as you were, as you were learning, what, what kind of wines were you working with at that point and what kind of wines were you finding yourself drawn to at that point? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so that company was really uh, focused, you know, in, in French imports, also German and Austrian imports, Italian imports, um, and Spanish imports. And uh, we also had um, um, a range of things from the Southern Hemisphere, and we worked with uh, a lot of Oregon producers, uh, primarily in Washington. So I didn't initially work, had the opportunity to work with um, those wines, but after doing a few years working, selling down in Eugene, I, I switched to selling in Portland and the Vancouver market. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, then I had the opportunity to work with all these wonderful Oregon wines, and that was a great path of discovery. But, um, you know, and hand in hand with that, I, you know, there's uh, annual trips to wine regions all around the world, which was, uh, you know, a great, uh, great experience. But I think, uh, you know, I've uh, always been uh, drawn to French wines and that continued and um, and then the greatest discovery and um, uh, you know, adventure were uh, with Italian wines and Austrian wines and uh, you know not surprisingly it's uh, those are a big part of the proof rock portfolio mm -hmm. yeah so as you're developing those kinds of relationships, tell me about the the what you found to be most successful and and some of the sort of the relationship. What were your kind of relationship building keys as you were as you were kind of developing those accounts? Um, 
To me, the, the success in building relationships and success in any sales, but certainly in wine sales, is developing trust and uh, working directly and honestly. And a big part of developing trust is being thorough and reliable, you know. Um, so um, I always, you know, took it upon myself. I mean, of course, you know, as I said, coming into it with, you know, being quite green, I, I um, took it upon myself to do everything I could to make up for that. And so that, you know, a big part of that was being super organized and, you know, keeping a history of wines that I tasted with each account so that I could refer back to it. I still do that. You know, it, it's just a simple thing, but I learned quickly that not everyone does that, you know. And so it's like someone says, hey, you showed me some wine like four months ago and it was a yellow label and I really liked it. Do you? Do you know what that was? And I'm like, no idea, thinking. But then I look at the list, and I'm like, in that, that date range, I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I remember, and you have a conversation, and someone's like, that's great. You know, and those kind of little details make a difference. Even, you know, just carrying your inventory, having you know, your, your actual stock and having a good picture of it. So when you get into a conversation, it's not like, oh, I don't know if we have that. I'll find out for you and get back to you. If you can, you know, do business on the spot and know what you have to sell, it goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of little details of just, uh, you know, um, uh, being trustworthy and, and uh, you know, straight with people, I found that led me to success. At that point, with the people you were selling to, what did you find they were looking for? What were, what were the wines they were looking for? What were, what, and what were their clients kind of clamoring for at that point? Um, well, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so at that point, I don't know if I can speak to that uh, directly. But, you know, more broadly, I would say that uh, there's such a huge range of what, what uh, you know, both clients as well as consumers are looking for. I mean, often it's unknown because there's, you know, a level of education. So, and that's usually, you know, often, you know, in, in the consumer base of not knowing, like someone going in a restaurant, it's like, I just want a, I want a white or I want a Chardonnay or whatever. And, Giving the freedom to the sommelier or the you know the wine buyers to to shape things mm -hmm. how they want and steer people, um, but often at the you know the client level and the account level they're just like I was. There's always, there's always people coming in that are new, right? You know, so then you have a, a path of discovery with them and helping educate them and helping explore what they like for their palate and helping them you know test things to see what works for their customers and uh, you know so. Um, there's always a broad range, mm -hmm. is how I'd answer mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So you mentioned that as you grew in that role, you took on, you started taking on more Oregon and starting to meet Oregon producers. So tell me your kind of initial impressions of the people you were meeting in Oregon wine and of the wines you were trying at the time. Um, well, my initial impressions of the people are just, uh, you know, some of the hardest working, uh, you know, people in show business <laughs> in this show, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, meeting you know, so many people um, that I still know to this day, you know, Jim Prosser and those that have, you know, passed away like Patty Green mm -hmm. and just uh, uh, such a, a long list of, uh, you know, people that we worked with and we're, we're close with. Um, and in terms of the wines, um, yeah, you know, it was a, a real discovery. I mean, I drink in a certain amount of California wine in California, but again, my orientation was more towards French wine. And so here's, you know, discovering the, the whole range of, of what Oregon wine can be and finding some that are, you know, 
feather light and really high acid and high tone and more you know European in, in kind of approach and some that are you know built with uh, much more structure and weight and volume um, which of course can be like a lot of European wines but you know we're like California wines so uh, it's a huge range and uh, a, you know fun path of discovery. What about the market demand at that point for Oregon wines? Where, what, what was the demand level for Oregon wines? Where, where were they selling, and, and was that was that changing as you were working with them? No, I think um, I would say it's uh, that's been pretty much a continuum. You know, um, I've always found that there's more demand for Oregon wines here in Portland than Washington wines, let's say, and because I work for a company that that was you know based both in Portland and in Seattle we've always found the opposite to be true up in Seattle of course there's more demand for Washington wines but you know that said there is a you know room for a lot of crossover um, but um, yeah you know I mean uh, locals local is um, you know top of the list and and for good reason you know I mean, we all talk about small footprint and, and eating locally and, and local farming and farm to table and all these things and that was going on then too you know we we're just talking you know 15 20 years ago and you know everyone's uh, conscious of carbon footprint and uh, you know when you're talking about bringing wines from Europe it's kind of uh, it's a big departure from that but you're you know, as I always, you know, purport, it's uh, you're you're sharing culture, you know, from from around the world. So it's it's more than just you know uh, a single beverage. It's not like you know importing a gallon of milk from France because you know you like that it's French. You know, you know, cheese is the same thing. It's like we you know here we we have a lot of French cheese here in the U.S. and here in Portland we all enjoy it. I do Italian cheese, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but they're all, they all have unique qualities, you know, and, and characters and, you know, and so that, and uh, they inspire local cheesemakers, domestic cheesemakers as well. So, you know, there's, uh, there's similarities there, you know, of course, with wine. So what was the next step for you as you, you grew up, you grew into that space, what did you do next? Um, after, uh, after you, you had your, kind of your first job and you yeah. mentioned how it kind of evolved. So yeah. what was the next step for you? Right. Um, so that company, uh, dealt with some uh, some issues between the two uh, partners, and so it ended up splitting up in 2010. I remained with the uh, the Seattle entity for a couple of years, but then that that folded as well. So um, it was a, a couple of years there that I was kind of figuring out what I was going to do next, and I considered leaving the wine business, and that's why I refer to the wine clause because <laughs> I had just got an MBA and I was kind of. Uh, thinking about perhaps getting back into music or you know trying really trying something completely different um, other other uh, you know inside I did a, a range of um, job uh, inquiries and uh, interviews for, for all kinds of things um, but nothing panned out and uh, which I'm, I'm happy about now because it kind of uh, led me to a path uh, for a year of working for uh, one of my current importers and uh, representing their wines on the East Coast as well as locally and in Washington and and traveling with them to Austria and, and kind of getting a view of the real importer market nationally. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that for about a year then um, as uh, that was coming coming you know through to a year point we needed to have a new home here for our for those wines and it was at that point that I decided to to launch Proofrock Wines you know as I uh, I thought, you know, I should just do this myself. I know this wine. I've just now just visited all these wineries and um, just start the company 
exclusively with these Austrian wines, which is kind of really nuts, but <laughs> with the intention, say, you know, it'll be a very focused book initially, and I'll leverage all my, you know, relationships and, you know, rely on those to, to launch, and people will, you know, uh, hopefully want to buy the wines because they'll, you know, they'll, uh, you know, appreciate working with me directly, and, and that'll be a starting point, and then from there I'll build all the French and Italian imports, um, which I did, you know, over the first year. So it kind of was like a, a starting point, and then uh, a growth uh, curve from there to start bringing on uh, imports and uh, grow Proofrock. And Proofrock wines was uh, started in 2014, so we're eight years in, and uh, we are about. 70-75% direct imports of French and Italian wines and all of our French and Italian wines are imported directly from um, from those wineries mm -hmm. you know in uh, in France or Italy and then we have a whole cadre of wines from Austria Slovenia Croatia Hungary um, Bosnia and now even uh, possibly a, a new Serbian producer is going to be coming along. But those are, these are all wines that are from two importers um, and uh, their books. And so those for all those wines, and that's about 30% of our products. Um, those are we're, we're the distributor for those wines, and we either get get them directly from Europe or off the East Coast. So as you started, you mentioned Austria, Austria as the focus first because of sort of the timing of, of what you when you did, when you did the work. Uh, tell me about the wines that you were attracted to to start with. What what did you choose to start the company with when you were looking at Austria specifically? And what and and as you progressed, what were you looking for with what you wanted to to, to distribute? Well. Um Starting a, a you know a, a wholesale company, uh, you you always need to have a, a focus on balance of uh, products that hit different uh, segments of the market. So that's uh, you know to some extent you know based on price point. So that's you know that you have for restaurants some things that can be served by the glass and some things that are served by the bottle. Same thing for retail, things that that will hit a certain price point of fifteen or twenty dollars on the shelf versus things that are you know, reach above that. So, you know, in terms of picking the uh, the selection of wines, it's, uh, you know, picking things that hit that balance, you know, and, and, and give you a good range of things in that, those lower tiers, because those are going to be the things that, that build your momentum mm -hmm. and your volume, both for selling as well as for reordering. Mm -hmm. um, and then hand in hand with that is a balance of, uh, you know, shades, shall we say, you know, white, rosé, sparkling red, etc. Um, and uh, finding that balance, which, you know, there's some seasonality um, in there, of course. Um, but, um, you know, so those two layers overlapped. And, uh, you know, of course, continue that to this day. You know, it's a big part of uh, running a wholesale business and, and keeping, uh, keeping everything flowing. So you mentioned the kind of the two big cogs there. You have the the restaurant and you have the retail. So tell me about the differences in working with the two different sides, uh, based based on what what you're what you're bringing to the table and and how it is that you're interacting with with the, the kind of the buyers on those sides. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I've always felt like um, you know for some some in the business uh, there's a perception that. The two are, are very divided. I mean, there's some larger companies where you, you know, where you have a on-premise or restaurant specialist who just focus on selling those kinds of wines versus retail, and and that the two worlds are quite distinct. Myself, I uh, 
I've never found it to be so much so, or at least perhaps here in the Oregon market. Mm. Um, certainly, A, you have those buyers that that move from one to the other, you know, and it's usually not the case. People that work in restaurants usually stay in restaurants, et cetera. But, but, it, but you know, you do see that, you know, someone's working at this wine shop and then now they're at a restaurant. And, and it's just, uh, it's more of a fluid environment. And uh, for me, in, in selling the wines, it's uh, equally so. I mean, certainly, like we were talking about, you know, selling, you know, talking about things that can sell by the glass. You know, you, you, you want to look at, at that, but it's the same thing on the retail level. There's things that at that same price point can move in big chunks because someone has a wine club or, you know, they put it in their newsletter. So it's, it's really, um, to me, a apples to apples. I mean, they're different worlds, but in terms of a wholesale approach and a selling approach, um, they, the, the two sit next to each other um, quite nicely. Um, a lot of companies that are larger, you know, in, in the wholesale business sell, you know, much larger volume to retail mm -hmm. than restaurants. It's kind of a, you know, typical formula. I know that was the case with my other company. Um, with Proofrock, um, pre-pandemic, I shall say, uh, we uh, have always been about 50-50 restaurant retail, which, you know, is great. And I feel, you know, privileged to... Uh, to have that, you know, and have those kinds of relationships with uh, restaurateurs and, and psalms. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, going into the, the pandemic, that got completely thrown on, on, its, on its head, you know, everything closing. So we had, you know, through that first year of the pandemic, we had to pivot completely and, and shift away from restaurants, you know, almost entirely, of course. Um, and then, you know, it's uh, through uh, restaurants reopening over the last year and a half, it's been a uh, a great growth growth opportunity because after after that pivoting you know and selling focusing more on retail as things reopen we're able to you know keep things going you know more robustly with retail and, and grow with the rest all the mm -hmm. restaurants reopening mm -hmm. so it's been uh we've been fortunate tell me about some of the the early the first couple of years of proof rock what were some of the early successes you had uh, at what point at what point did you think you had something that was going to last um, last week, <laughs> no, uh, a little longer than that, but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the first, uh, yeah, I, you know, I grew it really organically. I mean, it's just on my own. Initially, I was just doing all my own deliveries. And even in that first year, I felt like this is something that, that could last. I could, you know, could continue to grow this, you know, until, uh, I think until we moved here to this space, because initially we were uh, um, actually warehousing with uh, our friends uh, at Bow and Arrow with Scott Frank, and so we had a very small uh, cage about this area that we're standing in right now. You know, it's like you know, a few hundred square feet of wine, and we moved here, and we have over 2,000 square feet here. So this is this has given us uh, the room to stretch out, and we've been here about five years now. And so this, uh, I think, uh, moving into this space and increasing ordering dramatically over that next year and selling through and seeing us succeed in, in, in growing that much in that next year. We grew about 50% in that year following moving here. And uh, there's been growth since then. But I think it was that first year of moving here that, to specifically answer mm -hmm. the question. That, that would be where that felt, uh, felt like it could continue. 
You mentioned that your your kind of French wine was kind of your main passion, and that's like the the bulk. It seems like the bulk of your of your work now is, is coming from France. <clears throat> Tell me about discovering new things in France and, and what you're kind of trying to portray with the portfolio you've built here, specifically around French wine. Yeah, I mean, to, to, I, I will add that we sell probably an equal amount of Italian wine okay. to French wine, maybe even more Italian, depending on the, on the year. And, um, you know, so we're, we're, I think, known for, for both French and Italian. Um, but um, what was the question specifically about the French wine? <laughs> well, and I'm going to rephrase it yeah, because exactly, you gave me a right. chance to. So right. with French and then an Italian wine, yeah. what, is it, what is it you're trying to portray what, as you build the portfolio yeah. uh, and you're discovering new things? What is it you're trying to make sure that you're portraying with, your, with the, the wines you have in your, in your assortment here? Um, you know, we always... Uh, I would say we're we're just trying to portray honest wines, you know, and that's a big term, but you know, just wines that are made at a smaller scale. Our our, our wine, you know, as with many small importers, our wines are predominantly organic or biodynamic, generally naturally made. But uh, you know, um, I think overall we're you know trying to represent wines that are. Um, healthy products in that sense of being organic and not manipulated wines. Um, but overall, we, uh, we really focus on, uh, in that spectrum of wines that are made naturally, of clean wines, you know, wines that are um, uh, really well made and uh, that you wouldn't necessarily know are natural. We do have some things that um, uh, are, uh, I would say, that drink nattier than, than others, but for the most part, it kind of make that distinction. And this, again, is a, a vague and mm -hmm. broadly uh, interpreted term in terms of natural wines in this business, mm -hmm. but I, you know, refer to naturally way, natural wines and then natty wines in terms of whether, uh, you know, how, how they drink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd say that would be it. And that's true for both France and Italy. So I'm curious about the the demand for those wines specifically, and, and how much it's changed in the in the, especially in the eight years of proof rock. Uh, obviously, a lot of a lot of things in Portland have changed. A lot of things in Oregon have yeah. changed in terms of wine production, but also wine demand. So I'm curious, from your perspective, how have you how have those changes kind of resonated with what you're doing? Yeah, you know, um, in particular, uh, the last couple of years, there's there's a huge demand for skin contact wines. And, uh, you know, these are also called orange wines. Um, and, uh, you know, back in the day, we, we, uh, the company I worked for before, we, we all loved these wines and worked with a number of them. I still work with some of the same producers and work with some of the same wines. But uh, currently, there is just a, a huge appreciation for this. I mean, in the past, you never have, uh, you know, it seems like most wine lists that I see now, at, you know, at, at restaurants have a rosé orange or rosé skin contact section. Never had that before. It's just rosé, you know, if there's a rosé section on the list. So it's great to see, you know, the, this expansion uh, of interest in these wines. Um, and uh, it's fun to be able to, uh, you know, explore them. And, and, you know, hats off to actually one of our uh, Eastern European importers that really has done a, a, a great job of uh, sourcing them from both Slovenia and Croatia, kind of primarily Slovenia. And so they're well-priced and we're able to keep them in stock because they come off the East Coast. So it's been a, a real boon to our work with restaurants mm -hmm. to, to have these because they've, uh, they've been hot commodities. And in, in the current environment of uh, wine wholesale, as with many things, uh, supply chain is just so critical, you know, shipping, et cetera. You know, we can get into that. But uh, 
Um, so, you know, having things in stock is just a, an absolute key to success. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's, uh, you know, there's ups and downs of that for sure. Um, but um, because uh, we've had that cadre of uh, skin contact stuff that's pretty well priced, that's been, you know, just like uh, one little, one more little, uh, you know, box to stand on. And, uh, and, it's, and it's helped. Yeah, let's talk about the last couple of years then. So you brought, you brought up 2020 already and the and supply chain. So tell me about uh, early 2020 as things are starting to change. Tell me about the, the decisions you had to make and the pivots you had to make um, and the, the specific challenges of the past couple of years for you. Yeah, you know, um, there's been a number of them. It, you know, um, you've probably talked with some other uh, um, individuals about the, all the tariffs that uh, were in play and the changes through that. And so that was a couple different, you know, layers and levels of uh, things to navigate and deal with. Um, and those certainly, you know, impacted ordering because, you know, for example, you're like, okay, I'm going to get hit by a tariff on this item if it's above 14%, but that, you know, that, that other wine that I didn't use to work with from this producer, okay, that's going to, you know, it's going to come into the market for lower now, and that one's going to have a, a hit, you know, I'm going to have to raise the price, you know, all these decisions. So certainly impacted ordering. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, and then in the current environment, you know, um, you know especially since uh, the war in Ukraine um, and all the you know rising gas prices and just you know shipping containers, as I'm sure you've as well have talked about, it's just been this world, this, this nightmare world, and, and shipping costs have gone basically at least double, and so then you know like tariffs fell away, but shipping costs are just you know astronomical, let alone shipping timelines, you know things that would take two, maybe maximum three months to get here from Europe now or four to six months. And literally, I've had a good number of orders this year that take six months or even a little bit longer. And it's just a complete insanity that it can take that long for wines to get here. You know, I mean, you're waiting on these products. and But everyone's dealing with that, and you hear a lot about it in the market. So when you do get things in, it does create a little bit more of a, you know, a feast and famine situation where your buyers know, like, okay, everyone's going to pounce on this if you're bringing in products that are desirable, you know, and hopefully, you know, you are. But, you know, so it's like, okay, these are here, get them while they're here, and then, you know, things get gobbled up. So that helps, you know, but you're trying to find that balance of, uh, you know, having things that people want to work with and then keeping them in stock. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, big part of it, you know, in terms of, what we do over the last couple of years is just realizing, okay, I have to have about three to four times as much wine on order at any one time. I mean, the list is just crazy. And you're like, and it's scary initially because you're kind of like, how can I have this much wine on order? But the thing is, you're like, I don't know when any of this is going to come. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it all come a lot. You know, I've had a few times where it's like, we're just completely maxed out, you know. But again, then you have a lot of wine to sell. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just become part of the, the flow of it, of, you know, these unknowns and, uh, just ordering up and you know hoping it all works out you know it's a, a little bit of crossing your fingers for sure and and kind of you know you keep riding with it and it all you know it does um, I think uh, experience my experience over the last 18 years is uh, helps in this regard because kind of you know a lot of it is by feel mm -hmm. you know you it's in times like this where you can't do the standard analysis of looking at any one given item or a category and go, oh, what, what have the sales been for the last two years? Let me order based on that. It's like, well, there's these huge reasons, you know, that, you know, you'd have to scrub out. And, you know, so that therefore you end up just at the point where you're like, 
what do I feel like we should do on this? Mm -hmm. And I'm in that position over and over again with things. It's kind of like, okay, uh, let's, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way in terms of what you're going to order. And, and uh, you know, um, yeah, so it, uh, it's in times like this. I'm, I'm glad I've been doing it for as long as I have. <laughs> yeah. Sort of the micro ferments of, of wine sales. Yeah. So a bunch of little buckets around hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah, I like, true. I like that. Yeah. That's good. Uh, you mentioned uh, obviously the regions outside of, outside of France and Italy, uh, Slovenia and, and Hungary and Austria and and um, others Croatia, that yeah. Croatia. Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm curious about those the, the growth of those as wine regions that are that are less known by yeah. by most people here. Uh, you mentioned them very being very some of them being very hot right now. So I'm curious how much that's changed and and how how your role in like getting those wines here has changed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating actually. Um, you know, I, I went to Croatia and Slovenia uh, a few years back, uh, I think it was three years ago, maybe four, but um, I learned that Croatia had just joined the EU um, recently and that there was throughout Europe, there was a lot I had I'd seen, there was much more, and here, promotion of travel to Croatia, you know, more people were going and I, by learning that they had just joined the EU, I was like, ah, okay, that's why we're seeing all this marketing, it's like the EU is going like, okay, let's get people, you know, like we're in Croatia as well, they're taking advantage of this, right, which is great. But we did start, you know, start to see that on the ground here where, you know, little by little, I just have retailers, you know, say like, hey, I got a, uh, I got a customer, they just came, they just were in Croatia, they had some wine, they're looking for this. And then if one time that happens, and it's once in a blue moon in the past. And then it just started happening a little more, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and then people know like, oh, you have, you know, like your retailers know like, oh, you have these things and they turn to you. So I think there's been um, more of a tourist path of discovery for some of these parts of the world. And that's been part of it. And the other ha part of it is that uh, just even without traveling there, um, not everybody. Some people like to, you know, eat the same thing, drink the same thing every day. But for many uh, people, uh, they, they like discovery, you know, and whether that's, you know, um, a sommelier wanting to put some new things on the wine list or just, uh, you know, consumers that like to try new things and, and uh, you know, ask for new things at wine shops, wine shops that feature new things. So having new countries where previously we've seen very little wine, it, it opens up this path of discovery. I mean, we've certainly seen this. Um, we don't sell any Georgian wines ourselves, but I've seen this in the market. People are just really loving and discovering Georgian wines, which is fantastic. You know, I mean, these are the oldest wines in the world. Um, you know, and there's just many places like that where, you know, just it's a path of discovery mm -hmm. and, and people love that. So you mentioned 18 years in the, in the wine business. Uh, in that time, have you, what, what are the, what are the changes you've seen kind of an overall when it comes to either wine sales or customer demands or are there are there kind of big shifts that have happened in that time and what people are looking for or how you're and how you're providing them or is it or has it stayed roughly the same hmm I feel like it stayed roughly the same I feel like uh, that can't be so I'm trying to put my finger on uh, some of the big shifts because they must be out there um, I think you know one shift you know, I wouldn't call this huge or monumental, but um, um, rosé has certainly become more of a year-round yeah. commodity, you know, and wine, which is great. You know, in the business, we all love rosé and drink it all year, you know, whatever, especially some that are more structured. But um, it definitely always had more, you know, limited seasonal appeal. And now, 
it, it sells more. Hand in hand with that, I think, critically, is the changed weather here in Oregon and in many places. I mean, I know when I moved here, people would say like, oh, you don't need AC. It's only hot three weeks out of the year. And sure enough, it would rain about nine months. You talk about June gloom and it was rainy all June. Now it's like, I, I tell people when they ask, they're like, oh, how can, you see, how can you live in Oregon? It's so rainy, you know, it's like, yeah, it's really brutal, but it's only brutal for like three to six months. And really, you know, it's like, you know, six months of the year, it's pretty sunny and warm and too warm, if anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so that, that affects wine drinking, you know, definitely in terms of whites and skin contact and rosé, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there is a lot more opportunity because there's a lot more sun year round, you know, and, you know, even when you can't have sun in the sky, you can have it in your sun in the glass, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what we say. So obviously, you're, we talked a little bit before the interview, you're not obviously focused on Oregon wine specifically, but you do have some Oregon wine in your portfolio you've represented yeah. over the years. Yeah. So I'm curious, again, you mentioned kind of your initial impressions of Oregon wine. Tell me about its progression in your eyes. What, what have you seen change in Oregon wine and what has led you to, to represent the wine that you do uh, under Proof Rock? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I've seen overall changes in Oregon wine a more exploration of, um, you know, with certain certain wineries, um, exploration of appellations throughout Oregon, as well as an exploration of, of different varieties. And that, that always, you know, existed to a certain extent, but there's definitely a, a lot more of that going on, which I love. Um, you know, those producers that are really championing and, and bottling, you know, doing varietal wines of all kinds of obscure, obscure grapes and, and different ABAs and, and treating the wines differently and, you know, taking grapes from Southern Oregon and as opposed to just making a, a bigger wine because it's warmer down there instead, you know, no, doing, a, you know, doing pet gnats and doing lighter wines and all kinds of, you know, a whole range of things, which I think is fantastic um, and, and enjoy, you know, exploring those wines. Um, and then the other, you know, uh, biggest shift that I, I've seen is just the, I would, you know, speak to the, the success of Oregon Chardonnay. I know that for myself, way back, um, even this, uh, you know, not you know, not focusing on drinking a lot of Oregon wine, but I, I always kind of had a, a feeling that it's like God, I love Oregon Chardonnays. I feel like there's a lot of potential there someday, and and it's been great to see over the last 20 years see that evolve organically, you know, to some extent, and those producers that have really focused on it, and uh, and uh, um, yeah, it's been wonderful to to see that evolution. Um, the two uh, producers that we represent really uh, uh, came into our portfolio entirely organically. Um, one is Timothy Malone, and Tim and I are good friends, and we play music together. And um, we played in this uh, band um, uh, with a few other people in the wine business, and uh, just at a gig, we're just talking shop about wine and whatnot, and. And learned, and this is years ago. You know, just learned that he, you know, he really was focused on retail with his wines, and just uh, didn't have the the bandwidth to really get into restaurants and spend the time tasting with psalms and whatnot. And I said, well, you know, keep all your retail, and let me just try selling some stuff at restaurants. You know, why don't, why don't we do like a kind of some uh, hybrid thing and just you know see how that goes? And that evolved, and it was uh, really a, a win-win for both of us. And and since then, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, you know, or more recently, uh, Tim's moved um, down uh, closer to the valley, and uh, we've taken over the, the whole portfolio for him. 
uh, in terms of selling here in Portland. So that's been great. But uh, yeah, he's a good buddy and doing great work both uh, you know with his own wines as well as now as the the head winemaker at J. Christopher. Um, and the other is Sheba Wishern, and um, with uh, that is just simply seeing Akiko's wines at some really cool places a few years ago and just being curious and uh, as I do occasionally with various winemakers say hey you know just DM them up as I guess you could say is that a phrase <laughs> but uh, you know like hey you know I'd love to barter some wine love to try your wines uh, you know this is what we have we could maybe we could trade six packs or something you mm -hmm. know and people are usually open to that and that just you know led to a conversation of like oh you know your wines are fantastic someday if you're looking for uh, you know distribution they said well that's that's some days now actually that, you know, so that started that conversation and um, they came into our book a little while back and uh, it's been great working with them so yeah you know like like so many things it's just been a kind of a organic uh, you know development of partnerships mm -hmm. do you have intention of, of building more in that Oregon portfolio or is it or is it just kind of as it comes up it comes up as it comes up it comes up you know um, it always is a, an important part of a, being a success, successful wholesaler is having some local products, you know, and I know that. So it's, you know, I could seek out more, we could seek out more, but um, it's, it is kind of more like it makes more sense for us to, to let things evolve organically. And, you know, for all of our wines, you know, we bring things on, you know, because they make sense, mm -hmm. they, they feel right for proof rock and uh, as well as, of course, you know, a bit of market need. I mean, of course, you know, they have to feel right, but also, you know, you know, be something that, that you know, you, your customer's going to want and appreciate. Mm -hmm. You know, so, yeah, you know. So with Oregon Wine, you mentioned the changes you've seen. Uh, what does the industry look like to you as you kind of look at it in 2022? And, and what comes next for the Oregon wine industry from your perspective? Whew. That's hard to say. Um, you know, uh, we are seeing a lot of money coming into the valley, you know, so to answer what comes next, it, it, it uh, that continue, that comes next, I would say. And so that's, you know, a bit uh, cautionary, perhaps, you know, because I think we all feel like, you know, um, be careful or, you know, what have you. I, you know, overall, I think um, development and growth is good, you know, I mean, I'm from a big city, you know, I'm not, I'm not from a farming place, you know, and so it's not that I, I would want Portland to become Los Angeles by any means, but, you know, a lot of people bemoan that, you know, people that are from here, like, oh, Portland's, uh, you know, this is putting aside all the issues with, shadow, you know, COVID and demonstrations, but just in terms of growth of the city, uh, sure, there's challenges in, in any city's growing and, and how it's done and how it's managed and homelessness is absolutely a, a terrible, uh, uh, you know, problem here in Portland. But overall, though, you know, those things, and you can't cast them aside, but just, you know, the notion of the city growing and there being more people here. I know that when I moved here, I felt like, oh, this is like the last affordable place on the West Coast. And, you know, people are going to hear that and say, like, you're one of the problems. You're from L.A. and you, you know, led it. But I know that this is the nature. I mean, when I moved here 20 years ago, I met all many Californians who are like, oh, I moved here 20 years ago. I moved here in the 60s. I'm you know, like, oh, yeah. And now I'm one of those veterans. That when someone moves here now, I'm like, oh, I moved here 20 years ago. And I laugh at myself for that reason. But, you know, it's, it's normal. You know, mm -hmm. people, you know, move all directions. I mean, I know people from here that move to Los Angeles, you know, younger people, whatever, you know. And same with Seattle. I mean, people move around. So, you know, and cities grow. So I think that's really natural, and so I think there is going to be growth in the wine industry, to bring it back to wine. Mm -hmm. 
of course. Um, but you know, you do see it, it presents a lot of challenges when you have uh, big wineries from California coming in and uh, putting down you know big roots and taking over. Um, a lot of grapes that previously were the sources of grapes for some some smaller producers mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends and I know and I hear from them bemoaning like wow I just lost my source for for Milan or lost this or whatever because someone took it over and they're doing this and they're replanting it they're you know so I think there's going to be a, a fair amount of that you know those people that just want to come in and they're going to plant Chardonnay and Pinot and the things that make money there's that but you know they're, they're you know hand in hand with that we can hope that there are there are people that uh you know are able to to stick to their path and and grow what they want to grow and and work with smaller producers and you know hopefully we'll continue to see uh, a balance some sort of balance uh therein that's what i'd like to see so you talked earlier about uh, kind of some of the one of the big seminal moments for your for Proof Rock being moving into the space and being able to expand and grow. So I'm curious along the way up to now, uh, are there other moments along the way that you look look back on uh, or particular growth growth opportunities that you've that you've sort of seized upon in the past couple of years? Mm, well, I would say that bringing on the second importer of Slovenian and Croatian wine. Uh, that certainly was an opportunity, something that I wasn't seeking, and this importer reached out to me and uh, said, you know, I see what you're doing, you have Austrian wines and you don't have uh, what we carry. Um, and at the time I remember feeling like, oh, I already sell a lot of Austrian wine, I don't need more difficult to sell wines. More wines that people don't know, I should stick with France and Italy because, you know, these are just more challenges. People don't want that much Slovenian or Croatian wine. But fair enough, you kind of look at the other side of it and you go, you know what? looking at their products and seeing what other states they're in, you're like, someone's probably going to have these products. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're good. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should look at them. Maybe we should look at them, see how they taste, because otherwise, you know, a competitor's going to have them, right? You're like, fair shake. So, all right, you know, yeah, sure, why don't you send me a box of wine? Let's check them out. Do that step. Try the wines. Love a lot of them and go like, oh, well, actually, this is really good. And then that even turns it farther. You're like, well, definitely someone else is going to pick them up if I don't. I could be selling, we can be selling these wines, you know, this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So something that you weren't necessarily seeking sometimes lands in your lap as an opportunity. And uh, as I've you know, already spoken to, it ends up you know, being a great partnership and uh, that, you know, those wines are providing a, a certain base of uh, stability during tough times, you know. So, uh, you know, because of all the shipping challenges and, you know, they have their own challenges and certain things have been in and out of stock, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, we're all weathering that. So yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting path and journey. Uh, so let's talk about what comes next then. Uh, eight years into Proof Rock, uh, sort of coming out of a pandemic maybe at some point here. Yeah, I know, uh, right? Tell me, about, <laughs> tell me about what the next couple of years uh, and down the road you're kind of looking ahead to. Are there, are there goals you have in mind? Are there opportunities you're seeking out uh, that, as you look ahead? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, having weathered the, the pandemic as we have, um, I think there's... Uh, growth opportunities for Proof Rock in the years ahead. Um, how to navigate them, um, you know, remains to be seen, you know, so I'm, I, we're figuring that out at this time. So, uh, you know, uh, they're not set goals, but it's more, again, as, as uh, you know, as it evolves, uh, feeling that out organically and, and figuring out the, the right path for growth. 
Is there anything you are excited to try, a region you haven't tried yet, or an up-and-coming trend that you're seeing that you're excited to, to check out next? Uh, I hear there's many great wines from the moon that are going to be hitting the market. I really um, <laughs> No, um, yeah, you know, of course, uh, having been doing this for a little while, uh, there, uh, I can't say there are specific wines that I've never tried that I'm excited to try. Um, I'm sure there are, of course there are, right? But in terms of, you know, specific growth opportunities, I mean, again, as the company grows, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for us to grow into Spain, for example. I used to sell Spanish wines. I love Spanish wines. We just, you know, you know, as opposed to trying to do all things, we've limited it to what we do. So I think right there, that's that's an area where it's more of an obvious uh, area for both Spain and, and Portugal, I would say. Um, and then even, you know, within um, the countries we work in, there there's always room for more growth and discovery, you know, from from other regions, but also just within the regions you already work with and finding new producers. So there's certainly that as well. Um, German wines, I used to sell German wines. We don't sell any German wines, but there, there as well, there's a, um, opportunity for growth um, and challenge mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> as those wines can be you know, challenging to sell, but they're wonderful. Um, but again, you know, because we do so much Austrian up until now, it's like, oh, let's just focus on that. and you know, not, not tackle that as well. We recently, actually recently were approached by a Georgian uh, uh, portfolio, and so we did look at that and um, decided it wasn't the right fit for now. It's kind of a growing portfolio, so they're helping, I mean, they're still kind of uh, getting it together, I would say, and, you know, figuring out the right mix for their portfolio. Um, Greece as well, you know, there's uh, been some opportunities for importing, um, you know, bringing in a Greek portfolio. And, and I think that could be interesting. So there's, there's, uh, there's certainly, and that's an, an area I've barely sold very little Greek wine ever. Mm -hmm. So that would be a, um, a, a cool path to discovery mm -hmm. as well. It's interesting as you talk about all those places and the places, places you already sell from and the places you're thinking about that there is enough demand to even consider that. There's enough demand for those kinds of wines to even be able to be able to consider that here in Oregon. Well, yeah, I know. That's the perfect example. I mean, I, this Greek portfolio, for example, that, that you know I've, I've considered and, kind of felt the same way. I was like, you know, I don't see that much Greek wine, but then then you then sometimes you do see some really great Greek wines in some great places, you know, restaurants and whatnot, and try them and order them because you're curious. You're like, oh, this is fantastic. But, you know, that's a different equation when you're thinking about carrying a portfolio and having the warehouse, and you're like, okay, how much how much are people going to do? How much sustained purchasing mm -hmm. and consumption of these wines are we going to see? Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, yeah, it's hard to know. And, uh, you know, it's easier with some of my Eastern European stuff because I'm already working with the importer and they're like, hey, we have a new Bosnian producer. And it's like, okay, well then you can just bring in a few things with everything else you're already doing. Mm -hmm. So it's not bringing on a whole new entity, mm -hmm. you know, which, uh, you know, presents its uh, challenges and mm -hmm. along with opportunities. Mm -hmm. yeah. So outside of wine, uh, any plans for yourself in the future? Have any, anything in your kind of non-wine life that you're excited about or looking forward to? Um, you know, I just uh, look forward to uh, growing with my family. I have two kids, one of, uh, who are 12 and 8, and they're really into music and, and all kinds of uh, activities, of course. So mm -hmm. it's, it's great uh, you know, for my wife and I uh, seeing them uh, grow up and, and doing it here. Mm -hmm. And uh, that along with, uh, you know, 
living the uh, the Oregon lifestyle, which is so great, and being able to eat well and and uh, you know have an outdoor life. So you know, just appreciate uh, that we have all that, and through all this time as well, you know, that we that we have our health. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Not to put you on the spot too much, but I'm curious if, with with the professional music background that you have, is have you have you is that an itch that you that ever comes back? Do you have any plans on perhaps performing again or, or anything like that? Oh, I do perform a, okay. a little bit from time to time. Uh, actually, you know, recently, uh, it, Tim and I, he's a bass player, and uh, the the four four piece group that we were in before fell apart. But um, he and I do jazz duo gigs. Um, often they're wine related at you know various bars or restaurants. And we played recently at Maurice Restaurant. And we played at uh, Frank Wine Bar and at Beso and Lake Oswego. Those are just three in the last few months. But yeah, we occasionally do do gigs. So still uh, still have my hand in it. Excellent. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we needed to cover here that we didn't cover? think so. All right. I think we're pretty comprehensive. Excellent. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, we are going to get a little performance from you on the camera before we go here. So thank you so much for this part of the yeah. interview. Thank you for your hospitality and for sharing your story with us. Yeah, again, thanks for having me. Excellent. And we'll go ahead and pause real quick and let you set up and uh, we'll uh, fire up the camera. All right. So I thought it would be uh, fun to end the interview with just uh, one little jazz tidbit. And this is uh, an old jazz standard, which is called My One and Only Love. So. Gotta know what, what that all about, right? <laughs> joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.